0: When I was a child, I can remember staying up late at night um, and sneaking and watching Martin Lawrence's stand-up show, You So Crazy. He is and has always been one of my favorite comedians, whether in his stand-up show or on his namesake TV show. The phrase, You So Crazy, would normally follow some joke or funny act and with a little slap on the shoulder Someone, usually a woman, would say, you so crazy. That's where the title of this episode comes from. But I'd be lying if I said that this subject was a joking matter. Mental health and the stigma that it carries in the Christian culture has been a point of contention amongst believers and unbelievers alike. I will say I think the church is doing better at having these conversations, but it still remains a question as to why is this even a thing? Why are we so befuddled by the idea that people are dealing with situations that cause or are exacerbated by poor mental health or a mental health diagnosis? How can you turn on a TV or go through your news feed on any social media app and not be reminded of the fallen world that we live in? Yeah, people are going through things. People need help. People need to be seen this is a time for the church to step up and share and live what God has promised and delivered, a peace that surpasses all understanding. Join me as we dig into this topic and try to gain some footing. You So Crazy begins now. Hey friend, if you could see me right now, sitting at my desk in front of my computer with notes scattered everywhere, I would look you in the eye and tell you this. I am convinced of one thing for sure. This one, this episode right here, yeah, it's going to have to be a two-parter. I'm I'm looking at everything, all the things I want to say, all the points I want to hit, making sure I leave nothing out, And there's just no way unless you just want to come to my house and we can sit and chit chat about it. But there's no way I can try to keep this episode nice and condensed the way I try to keep most of them and touch on everything we need to touch on. So we're going to have to sit with this one for a couple of weeks if that's okay. So on this topic of mental health and the stigma that it carries with the church and our experiences as believers and unbelievers trying to navigate this space, I want to start with the story of a woman named Ginger Robertson. I want you to listen carefully as I read her experience to you um, as a Christian who has battled with her own mental health. Ginger says, as a church-going healthcare worker who has fought her own battle with mental illness... I've always been frustrated by one message I consistently heard in church. Mental illness makes you a quote-unquote bad Christian. Growing up in a gospel church in southern Louisiana and even attending a non-denominational Protestant church as an adult living in North Dakota, I internalized harmful messages that inspired fear rather than encouraging help or healing. In sermons, books by Christian leaders, and private conversations with preachers and churchgoers, I would often hear the following statements, she says. You aren't a good Christian if you can't beat your depression. You don't have enough faith. You just need to trust in God. You need to pray more. You're letting the devil in. You're possessed. Accusations like these, Ginger goes on to say, as you might expect, have the power to shame and derail anyone living with mental illness and hinder them from seeking necessary care. She goes on to talk about how when it came to physical illness, faith leaders uh, at my church encouraged us to see cardiologists, obstetricians and oncologists as maintaining physical health allowed us to be good and faithful Christian soldiers. We were taught that God is the great surgeon and the ultimate healer, and he can work through health care providers. However, his power to heal through others seemed to stop when it came to therapists or psychiatric medications. Instead, mental illness was treated as a spiritual and moral failure that could only be fixed through prayer and repentance. She tells this story here. When I was battling depression as a teenager, a preacher even attempted to, quote unquote, cast out my demons. He pressed his hand on my forehead. I command the demons to come out in Jesus's name. I truly believe the preacher had the best of intentions, but the event left me feeling like I was a bad person, equivalent to a demon, and so weak that I would allow demons to live inside me. I cried myself to sleep that night. She goes on to then relay another experience that she had, you know, at a different church with another preacher, again, that left her feeling because she had not conquered her mental health, that somehow she was a bad Christian, that somehow she just didn't love God enough. Through seeking out her own therapy um, and through Christian-based health care, she kind of got to a place where she was starting to manage her mental health well. But she was surprised to find that even with Christian-based health care, that they would not cover her antidepressants because those medications were not considered biblical. She talks about how her home church in North Carolina, uh, she had this belief, I'm sorry, North Dakota would be this huge support system for her as she drifted on in her mental health journey. But after she had um, a serious physical injury that led to her mental health declining, she found that she was often rejected instead of received. She says, despite her involvement in her faith community as a successful participant in prayer groups, children's church, and even community outreach, she wasn't permitted to volunteer with the youth because she had struggled with her mental health and in the past had had suicidal ideations. She says that the youth pastor dismissed my concerns, telling me to keep working on myself and that I could be interviewed again in a year. The message felt clear, your desire to participate in the church is of less importance than Than our belief that your mental illness is a threat to our church. That mental illness would be a threat to our church. Now, gender is not alone. According to the National Alliance on Mental Illness, one in five U.S. adults struggles or battles with some form of mental illness. One in 20 U.S. adults will admit to suffering from a serious mental illness. Remember, one in five actually suffer. One in 20 will admit that they suffer. 20% approximately experience some type of anxiety disorder. And with over 60% of Americans considering themselves Christians and a large percentage of those struggling with mental health issues, I have to wonder where are we going wrong? Where are we going wrong? And if our experience or your experience has been anything like Ginger's, how in the world do we expect to present to the world a savior that sets people free, and yet keep believers bound and silent about the real issues that they're dealing with in their lives? Why are people being shamed for their struggles or taught that if you just believed more, you wouldn't have to deal with this? Being left with feelings of guilt and shame and thoughts like, if I love God, why am I suffering? What am I doing wrong? And why am I being punished? As I stated before, today's episode is really going to start to just lay the foundation because there is so much for us to go through here. So I don't want you to feel like if you reach the end of this episode that you just wanted a little bit more. Trust me, it's coming. It's coming. But allow me just to lay the foundation. I believe that we need to have a safe space where we can feel comfortable with opening up and talking about how we feel with the intention of receiving sympathy empathy, and most importantly, counsel. If we're going to open up and expose ourselves, we want to get something valuable from it. And the church ought to be that safe space. It doesn't have to be the only one, but it ought to be one of them. And I think that obviously we live in a culture where there is no shortage of platforms or places to express how we feel, hence this very podcast. But I think the difference is, the intention behind that sharing and the intention when you're on the other end and receiving we inhibit emotional intelligence and prevent ourselves from getting to places where we can have deep and effective conversations that will navigate below the surface level when we pretend that we're not struggling and that that idea that we have to pretend is often ingrained in us through poor teaching It's taught to us that if we really loved God, then we wouldn't be feeling what we're feeling. We're taught that it's not possible for you to be grateful for what you have and yet be discontent or dissatisfied in some area of your life. Can I just give you an example? As Christians, we are taught that if you are mature in Christ, that you understand something about joy and happiness, that you understand that it is your job to choose joy. That even in the midst of hard and difficult circumstances, that you have the option to choose joy, which is a superior emotion because it's not based on your circumstances. We're taught, in fact, that joy is something that we experience in spite of our circumstances, all of which is true, all of which is biblical. See James chapter one. Joy is taught to us as the big girl or the big boy emotion. It's the spiritually mature option. Your life sucks right now, but guess what? You can choose joy. However, what's also always mentioned when joy is taught, what do preachers and teachers always hinge on? The opposite, right? Happiness is taught as the opposite. We're taught that happiness is a worldly emotion. It's a low emotion. Happiness isn't biblical. Happiness is fleeting and it's only based on your circumstances. Well, let me ask you this. What's wrong with that? What's wrong with me wanting to experience circumstances that make me happy? I don't know why as believers. We have to take things to such extremes. No one wants to live a life that they have to wake up and choose joy every day because it sucks. (laughs) What is wrong with asking the Lord to craft your circumstances so that you can be happy? So that you can like the way your life is going? Yes, happiness is circumstance-based, but what's wrong with asking God to change my circumstances? What's wrong with asking him to arrange my life in a way where I get to experience happiness on a regular basis. I'm not proposing we manufacture our own happiness. I'm not talking about manipulating God and only thinking of him as good if we like what our lives are looking like that day. I'm not talking about selfishly seeking um, what we want despite how it might affect others. I'm not talking about exalting ourselves at God's expense or another expense. I'm talking about simply asking God if it is in his will, and if it's the only thing that keeping me from having it is asking, why not ask, Lord, I want to be happy. Why is it considered lacking spirituality or immature for me to actually want to enjoy my life and not have to make the daily de- decision to choose joy? Because it's implying that my life is in such a state that I can't just experience joy. I have to choose it. Maybe I can just have a great experience where I'm happy. Like I don't choose to breathe. It's a natural function of my body. If I had to make the conscious and deliberate decision to breathe every day, multiple times a day, multiple times in a second, I'm likely to miss some breaths, not enjoy my life and and possibly end it if I forget to breathe. Right. I want happiness to be like breathing. I want it to just be. I want it to naturally come to me. I don't want to have to choose. I want circumstances in my life that make me happy. Does that mean every circumstance will make me happy? No. Does that mean that every time I ask God to fix a circumstance so I can experience happiness without any kind of effort that he's going to? No. But is there anything wrong with asking to be happy? To wanting to be happy? To wanting to be in a good mental place without a whole lot of striving and effort? Absolutely not. And about happiness being unbiblical, can I call some witnesses forward? Come here, Job. Job 22:19. The righteous will be happy. Come here, Psalms. Psalm 113, 9 He gives the childless woman a family, making her a happy mother. Praise the Lord. Come here, Proverbs 3:18. Wisdom is a tree of life to those who embrace her. Happy are those who hold her tightly. Even wisdom herself experienced happiness in Proverbs 8.31, where she says, and how happy I was with the world he created, how I rejoiced with the human family. Proverbs 15.5, for the despondent, every day brings trouble for the happy heart. Life is a continual feast. Proverbs 23.25, so give your father and mother joy. May she who gave you birth be happy. Okay, Solomon in Ecclesiastes. So I concluded there is nothing better than to be happy and enjoy ourselves as long as we can. Let's get rid of this old rhetoric that tells us that being a Christian means you can't have an expectation of happiness, that you can't have an expectation of being in a good mental place. That way of thinking, teaching, preaching enforces the idea that if someone is struggling with mental illness, specifically something like depression, That either one, they're just not choosing joy enough. They're not trusting God enough. Or two, that they ought not to even have any expectation that they can be happy. Both are horrible. (laughs) So yes, choose joy in the hard times by all means. But also know that it's okay to just want to be happy. Can I give you another example? Have you ever heard that you are somehow needy or weak if you seek affirmation from others? There is nothing wrong with desiring to be affirmed. You have a human innate quality that tells you that you need to be affirmed, that you need to be seen. Have you ever seen that study with the baby where the baby's trying to make eye contact with its mother? And the individuals conducting the study begin to ask the mother to stop engaging, whether it's through touch or eye contact. And over time, slowly but surely, you can see the life in the light and the baby begins to dim. She's no longer being engaged with, affirmed, or seen. That's what happens to us when others don't relate to us, don't engage with us, affirm us, or see us. We need it. We were created to need affirmation. How can you? be created for relationship and not need affirmation from those you relate with. You don't ever need someone to tell you you're doing a good job. You don't ever need someone to say that they see you, that your effort matters. It's a whole love language, (laughs) words of affirmation. What needs to be more clearly fleshed out when we talk about things like this, when we talk about that need to be affirmed is that one desiring affirmation isn't wrong. What can get us in trouble is seeking affirmation and seeking it from the wrong sources. So this implies if it's something that that is natural for me to desire for all human beings, apart from a, a sociopath, right? That all human beings desire to be affirmed that means that there ought to be this kind of give and take that's occurring, this, this 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 affirming of one another naturally. And if we're all intent on filling each other's cup, then that affirmation we desire is going to happen organically. The problem is we live in a fallen world and people are so afraid to pour into someone else lest they find themselves empty. So a lot of us are just kind of walking around and And trying to hang on to our last little drops, right? We're dry and thirsty. (laughs) Seeking affirmation from whoever we can and whatever we can. With trying to not let on that that's what we're doing. Not being able to acknowledge that you desire to be happy. That you're frustrated with how your life is going. That you may be overwhelmed that you need to be affirmed, that you need to be seen, these bottled up emotions contribute to toxic environments that aggravate and irritate your mental health. And even if you don't suffer from a a mental health diagnosis, if you've been taught in church that happiness is spiritually immature or that your need to be seen or affirmed is prideful, let me reassure you of this. You have been lied to. And it probably wasn't intentional. I wanna believe that people are not intentionally misinterpreting teaching and preaching God's word. I believe they're doing so in the best way that they know and either what they've been taught or what they've been led to believe. But we can all interpret wrong. None of us, none of us, especially myself, are immune from making a mistake. So if that has been your experience, I hope today frees you up a little bit. I hope that today a seed was planted that I trust through your own study of God's word, through the power of the Holy Spirit, that he will water to free you up to believe that what you feel, that desire to want to be happy, that desire to be seen, that that's okay. Emotions are not good or bad. They're just tools. They are tools that God gave us, not censors and God forbid, not sins that we need to try to suppress. These conversations that we're having today, they come about when we seek to be emotionally intelligent. This is why spending time in your Bible is so important. The Bible gives us wisdom in these areas, how to allow our emotions to be indicators, but not dictators. This is why I'm such a proponent of linking up with mental health professionals like therapists and counselors, regardless of whether you quote unquote suffer from mental illness or not. Everyone needs help navigating their emotions. There are also so many resources and great books where wonderful research has been done to explain how our brains work and what part of our intelligence can be developed. I love it. People are often surprised that I'm so interested in what science has to say about a matter because I'm a believer. And I think that it's so unfortunate and archaic and sad that we think that these two things, being a believer and enjoying science, have to be polar opposites this is my humble opinion. Science doesn't create anything. Science is man's way of trying to explain what God has created and put in place. Man cannot make something from nothing. We can manipulate it. We can study it. We can alter it. We can try to recreate it. We can mold it, but we cannot create something from nothing. Only God can. So, yes, I become fascinated with how man explains what God has made. Do I agree with all of it? No. Am I smart enough to understand all of it? Definitely not. But I remain amazed at these geniuses and their intelligence who do this trial work and try to contribute to society by doing the work to help us understand this masterful creation that is the human being and make it somewhat digestible for a nerd like me. Whenever I think of those, that I lovingly call stiff-necked, right? Just set in stone about how uh, they're going to approach a matter or think about a matter. It makes me think of a pastor of mine in this illustration he used to tell perfectly, and I'm sure I'm going to mess it up because I'm paraphrasing, but just stay with me. There was a man who lived in a city that was being plagued by a hurricane. Knowing for sure that if he stayed in his home, he would surely drown, he climbed onto the roof and prayed that God would save him. A van of people evacuating from the city offered him a ride. The man declined, saying, I'm trusting God to save me. The van drove on. As the water began to rise, a man in a rowboat came by and offered the man a road to safety. The man arrogantly declined and adamantly state- stated, I'm trusting God to save me. The man rode on. As the water began to rise so high that it reached the edge of his roof, a helicopter descended, dropped a ladder, desperately urging the man to grab on so they could lift him to safety. The man refused yet again, shouting back up at the helicopter, I'm trusting God to save me. The helicopter flew away. And what happened to that man? He drowned. We have to stop thinking we know how God is going to save us. God was in the van. God was in the rowboat and God was in the helicopter. Three times God sent help, but because help didn't look like God to that man, he died when he could have been saved. What has God sent to help you that you've rejected because it doesn't look like God to you, sound like God to you, felt like God to you? What is it that God is trying to tell you now that you could possibly be resisting because you've been under some bad teaching, because the church did you a disservice by telling you that your mental illness was a punishment, that your mental health was a result of your sin, that your mental health was a result of you not trusting God enough. I say all of this to say, being a Christian does not mean that you have to eliminate science. It does not mean you need to eliminate traditional medicine or therapy or counseling or meditation or affirmations or holistic medicine or natural remedies. Being a Christian it means acknowledging that all resources are at your feet. All resources are yours because of who your father is and that he can use whatever or whoever he wants to redeem you and restore your mind. Don't be closed off because this hasn't been what you were taught. Remain teachable. And for God's sake, remain reachable. Okay, now that we've laid the groundwork, next week we're going to explore what the Bible has to say about mental health, what tools are at our disposal biblically, how we can continue to combat the stigma that surrounds mental health, particularly within, but not limited to the Christian community. We are going to hopefully combat this whole idea that you can't be a believer and struggle for mental health. If you don't take anything else from this message, I want you to understand that I'm a believer. I struggle with my mental health. I absolutely have a therapist. And I, I'm a huge proponent of everyone being brave enough to take that step. I'm, I apologize on the behalf of teachers or preachers or church leaders, or anyone who may have made you feel like if you think you needed that, that you somehow didn't love God, or you somehow didn't trust him. God is with the therapist also. God is with the antidepressants. It is about what you need to get better. So we're going to dispel this idea that it's wrong for you to want to be healthy, to want to be happy, to want to be seen, to want to be affirmed, to want to be acknowledged, including what you may be struggling with. We're going to reject the idea that God only comes in the way that we expect, in the way that we've been taught, in the way that it's been preached to us, and understand that even the most well-intentioned ones could have led us astray. We're going to let go of these ideas if we are the teacher and the preacher and the church leader that someone is not fit to serve because they suffer from mental illness or they somehow are not fit to be a part of our family. Jesus did not come for the well. He came for the sick. And in case you didn't know, we're all sick. (laughs) We all got something. So I hope this this episode really helps you to feel compassion, not only for others, but for yourself. We need some self-love, some self-compassion, some self-empathy. It's okay if you felt overwhelmed, unhappy, and unseen. And it's okay if you want those things to change. That's why we're here. We're always about growth. You guys know my spiel by now. If you've listened to this episode and have found any value, please share it with someone you care about. If you consistently find value in what you hear here, then by all means Please consider supporting this podcast with a monthly subscription for as little as 99 cents a month. Your subscription allows me the ability to continue bringing you consistent content every single week. And who knows, maybe more than once if the spirit hits right. I thank you for spending this time with me. I thank you for investing in yourself and your growth. I thank you for taking care of yourself. You're so important to me. I love you. I'm Shania and this is Rooted. Rooted. <laughs>